Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of frightful monsters. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neering. And today, we're talking about... Oni and Tengu, two of the most recognizable types of yokai from Japanese folklore. That's right. Oni can be described as ogres or trolls or demons is how I always knew them as. But I learned a lot more researching this. Yeah, I've heard yeah all those words used to translate Oni into English, but I don't think any of them really get the whole idea of what an Oni is. Right, it's an Oni. There's no direct correlation. Right. And Tengu, you don't really see that translated into English at all. They're pretty much just referred to as Tengu, because we don't really have anything to compare them to, even less so than with Oni. But like Oni, they're also generally known as destructive, and Tengu are specifically known for their big, long red noses and their big bird-like wings. So both of these creatures fall under the category of yokai, which we talked about just about a year ago in last year's Halloween special. So if you're not sure what a yokai is, I would highly recommend going back to check out episode 16. We talked about yurei and yokai. I'll give you a good foundation, help you understand what we're talking about in this episode. Yeah, so Halloween special number two. I've been looking forward to this since we recorded the first one. Me too. Because it was so fun, and there's so many other things. I'm already looking to Halloween special number three. Yeah. But let's do this first, because I'm excited. Okay. So yeah, both Oni and Tengu have appeared in Japanese folklore for centuries. So today we're going to talk about their history, talk about what these things are. I'm going to share some pretty fun stories about them. Got a few tales written down here. Oh, yeah. And we'll finish it up by talking about where you can see Oni and Tengu in Japan these days. Should we start with Oni? Let's dive right in. All right. So let's start with the origins of Oni folklore. Where did this idea originally come from? It's a little bit murky, but possibly introduced to Japan along with Buddhism. Yeah. So I want to start with the etymology, if that's okay. Let's talk about the yeah. word oni. So that word may have originally come from a kanji that means to hide or conceal, which makes sense because, like we said, oni are a type of yokai. Yokai in general were created to explain natural phenomena like natural disasters and disease, things that people didn't really understand. So originally, a lot of yokai didn't even have physical forms. They were just invisible spirits kind of messing with the human world. Yeah, they get blamed for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Something bad happens. Oh, there must be an oni around. Yeah. I even read that early on, very similarly to the word yokai, the word oni could refer to almost any supernatural creature. You know, at the very beginning, they didn't have this specific idea of like what we now think of as an oni. Yeah, the folklore's really evolved and added things over the years. Mm -hmm. But like you said, Paul, the idea of an oni seems to have its origins in Buddhism, probably. Yeah, and there might even be a mix of some Hindu ideas in there, mm -hmm. which Buddhism probably borrowed from. Yeah, I saw that in India there were ideas of man-eating creatures that might have somehow melded with 
you know, this idea of Oni as it made its way to Japan. So yeah, Buddhism made its way through China and finally to Japan in the 7th century. Different stories and legends combined and morphed. Eventually in Japan, Oni became known as Wardens of Jigoku, which is hell. And they carried out sentences on sinners. Much like the idea of Western demons. I feel like this is where that translation comes from. There are a few similarities between Oni and demons in Western mythology. Yeah. If you heard, oh, they're the monsters that torture people in hell, you'd be like, oh, a demon. Right, right. So like a lot of yokai folklore, if you went back and listened to our last Halloween special, talked about how in the Edo period, that's where all of this stuff really had a resurgence. Like it, it was a very big and popular culture at the time. They had a lot of art, both literature and visual art, kind of showing what these yokai looked like. And that included Oni, of course. Yeah. So what do Oni look like? Well, they are humanoid. But they're huge. Like, they're not just human-sized. They're shaped like a human, but they're like two to three times the size of a normal human. Yeah, they're always described as large or hulking or some adjective to describe how big they are. Yeah. And they're very strong, usually portrayed as like super muscular. And just, just these huge hulking, they're like giants, right? They're taller than trees sometimes even. And they're, they're just huge and scary. Yep. And they have horns, or at least a horn, sometimes horns. Yeah, I think most commonly these days you would see two horns, usually. Growing out of their heads. Yep. Originally, though, in the, in the past, you know that horns were less common? Interesting. I saw a lot of examples of like old Oni masks without any horns. You know, I was actually thinking it could be part of the prevalence of art later on, like drawing horns on them makes them stand out makes them look cooler or more bad or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the more people painting them, maybe they get more and more embellished as the generations go on. Sure, yeah. People like try to come up with ways to make them look even scarier, maybe. Yeah. I also, there's another thing that might explain the horns that I'll mention a little later on. Oh, you're saving it. Yeah, (laughs) just a teaser for you. All right. Um, They also would have really sharp claws. And big fangs, a lot of pointy, scary, dangerous parts of them, right? (laughs) And big, crazy hair. Wild hair. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, with just kind of embellishing them and making them look scary, they might have a third eye on their forehead, or maybe they just have one eye. I think I've seen Cyclops Oni. Yeah, they're not pretty. Yeah. They're like hideous creatures. Yeah. They're human-like but there are all these different things about them that are kind of disturbing and like, oh, that's definitely not human, even if it's sort of human-shaped. <laughs> yeah, even their color. They're often red or blue or white. Yeah. Um, sometimes even other colors. Yeah, they can be almost any color. But think, rarely just look like a human. Right, right. I think the most common color might be red. That's how I've usually seen them. Yeah, common demon color. Yeah. So they might have extra fingers or toes. Yeah, or maybe, often. Maybe less than five fingers or toes. It's just to make them a little creepier. Yeah, make them a little more not quite human. Mm-hmm. 
So what are they wearing? Are these guys just running around naked, Paul? Almost. Yeah. But uh, they wear tiger skin loincloths. Yeah. And they also carry big spiked or studded war clubs called kanabo, which is a weapon that samurai used, actually. And they're iron. Iron clubs. Okay. Is there some significance to that? Not that I could tell, but like everybody seemed to make a point there. Iron clubs. Okay. Like, okay. Sure. I mean, that would be better than a wood one, probably. Yeah. So, like I said, these things are called kanabo. Paul, did you see that there's a saying about the kanabo? Yes. Oni with an iron club. Yeah. Oni ni kanabo. So that means you're invincible or undefeatable. Yeah. So if like a boxer is just knocking everybody out, he's like an Oni with an iron club. Yep. Can't touch this guy. Totally. That's kind of a cool statement. Yeah. You get compared to like, you're as badass as a demon, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're like, yeah. It's pretty flat. Yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Oni also have some special powers, like most yokai. They can fly, even though they don't have wings. They can just shoot off into the sky like Iron Man, I guess. <laughs> Supernaturally strong. Mm-hmm. They can shapeshift. And I mean, all of those are kind of... There are a lot of different yokai with those same abilities. Yeah, yeah. They got lots of powers. Mm-hmm. Oni have even been known as sorcerers with all sorts of magical powers, also similar to many other yokai. So basically, to bring it all together, these are scary guys. You don't want to run into one of these in a dark alley on your way home late at night. No, they might eat you. Yep. They're known as bringers of disaster, spreaders of disease, and as I mentioned, punishers of the damned in hell. Yes. So, in some ways, they are similar to Western demons. But, I saw an interview with this guy that's like an Oni expert. He said one of the major differences between Oni and Western demons is that Oni are not always 100% evil like their Western counterparts, especially these days. Interesting. You know, thinking about that, I feel like maybe in the West, we're almost starting to get to that point too. The younger generations are getting a little less serious about religion. Like, uh, I actually watched the show Lucifer like a few months back. Hmm. And that's kind of like, he's the devil living in LA, which kind of works. <laughs> but it Seems uh, like the place he would be, I guess. He's not a good guy in the show, but he's not awful either. Like he's more of a sympathetic character? Yeah. Yeah. He's got some problems, yeah. but he never he doesn't go out of his way to hurt people unless they wrong him. Hmm. I haven't seen that show, but I definitely think there's a trend in recent years towards like the anti-hero, right? You got these characters that, you know, in the past might have been portrayed as purely evil, but now it's like they're the main character and you're kind of seeing the story from their side. Yeah. What about Casper the Friendly Ghost? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> ghosts ghosts haven't always been evil either, right? I mean, I think one they of the main were. things about ghosts is that, well, they're scary maybe, but I don't think all ghosts are usually evil. Like, there's that big idea of, oh, this person's soul is just trapped in this certain place and they just have unfinished business or whatever, right? That's true. That's true. I don't know. They're not necessarily there to haunt you, but they could be. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so Oni aren't necessarily there to eat you, but they might eat you. Yeah. But sometimes 
They can be seen as protectors. For example, I saw that sometimes men dressed as oni might lead parades to scare off bad luck. Like the oni is scaring away the other scary things. So if you got him on your side, it's a good thing. Yep. Paul, did you read about onigawara? No, what's that? These are roof tiles adorned with oni faces. Oh, yeah, yeah, the oni gargoyles. Exactly, yeah. They're just like Western gargoyles except with an oni face. Yeah, they ward off evil and bad luck. Exactly. That kind of makes sense. Like, make your building so scary, nobody wants to go mess with it. Mm-hmm. Totally. Paul, I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. Where do we come from? Like, what's their deal? They don't just pop up out of nowhere, right? No, they don't. So, a wicked soul that is beyond rehabilitation will transform into an oni after death. Hmm. Uh, and only the very worst people could possibly turn into an oni while alive. Hmm. And those are the oni that cause trouble for humans because they're in the human realm still. Right. Rather than in hell. So we got two different types of oni. Yes. So if you, if you die and you're a really, really terrible person, like the worst of the worst... You're going to serve the great Lord Enma, the ruler of hell. And you're going to just stay down there for eternity, punishing sinners. I saw that they would peel off people's skin. They're crushing bones, doing just unimaginable, indescribable horrors to people. And they enjoy it. You know, okay, this struck me as a little weird. It's the very, very worst people that turn into this type of oni but if they're enjoying it and they get to torture all these people and they're having fun, like why, why are they kind of being rewarded in hell for being so terrible, you know? I totally had the same thought. Like if you're just the worst, you become an Oni and you get to go run around crushing people. Yeah. But if you're n- not quite the worst, just kind of a bad person, you end up in hell and you get tortured forever by these worst people. Yeah. It's really odd. Almost seems like if you know you're a terrible person, maybe it's motivating you to be even worse. Because if you're bad enough, you get to have a great time in hell torturing people. Yeah, I've lived an awful life. I better murder some children before I die just to make sure I come back as an Oni or get transformed into an Oni. Man, there's a clip I could use out of context. Ah, you've already got so many. (laughs) (laughs) All those ones where I'm like, oh, delete that. And you're like, okay, okay. And it goes right into like the secret folder. Yeah. How do you know about that folder? Because I know you. (laughs) All right. Anyway, so so the Buddhist hell, full of oni. You can think of them as the soldiers of hell I saw. They're like, you know, the army of hell. Yep. So we got the other oni that become oni in life, right? So I guess I was saying the worst of the worst become oni in hell, right? Mm -hmm. But- if you're even worse than that, like the worst of the worst of the worst, like the 0.001% of the worst, like the really super, super evil, are they the ones that become Oni during their lifetime? Yeah. When they can transform into an Oni while still alive. Crazy. Yeah. I don't know if they're still alive anymore after they transform into an Oni. That's a little bit unclear. Yeah. Like where is the line between a human and... A, a living oni because i mean oni are yokai 
Uh-huh. Right. They're a super, they switch from human to supernatural being at some point. Yeah. Yeah. What that means about their status of life, I'm not quite sure. Mm-hmm. But, anyways. So, these only that live among us in the human plane, they're said to live on remote mountains, in caves, on islands, perhaps. They're known for eating pretty much anything, but they especially like eating people's livestock and eating people. Maybe you start off with the livestock. And then eat the livestock's owners for dessert. Yeah. And alcohol. I saw Oni are big fans of drinking. Oh, yeah. Demons, of course. Yep. Okay. So, we know what these things are. We know how they come to be. Now we need to know how do you protect yourself from an Oni. Don't want to get eaten. What do you do? Yeah. There is a very specific thing that you can do to protect your home from Oni. What's that? Well, we've talked before on the podcast about geometric divination. The idea that you have to pay attention to certain directions and shapes when you're orienting buildings and stuff, right? The idea of feng shui is an example of geometric divination. And I believe it was was in the Japanese Gardens episode. We talked about how the similar ideas can help you determine how to lay out your Japanese garden, right? Oh, definitely. You want a stream going in a certain direction, that kind of thing. Yep. So this stuff applies to protecting yourself from oni as well. In Japan, the northeasterly part of a building is called the kimon, or the demon gate, which is unlucky and is a place where oni can get into your house to steal all of your good luck, which is obviously a bad thing. And this direction, the northeasterly direction, is based on the animals from the Chinese zodiac. This direction is also called the Ushitora, the ox-tiger direction, which may explain why only have that tiger loincloth and the horns. The horns from the ox, the loincloth from the tiger. Yep, little collins there. Yeah. I even heard, Paul, in Japan, you can actually go to a stationery store and buy a compass that instead of being marked north, south, east, west, it's marked with the animals of the zodiac so you can find your demon gate and make sure you set up your home properly to protect yourself. Well, that's a useful tool. Yeah. So a lot of times temples are built facing northeast to guard against the evil spirits. A lot of buildings you might see have, have a little L-shaped indentation on the northeast corner that's supposed to ward off. Oni. Kyoto Imperial Palace is one notable example of that. You can see that there. If you even go on Google Maps, look up Kyoto Imperial Palace. You'll see that little notch on the northeast corner. All right. You just solved a mystery for me because I apparently wasn't reading close enough. And I was looking at a maps picture of the Tokyo Imperial Palace going, where the heck is this indent in the northeast corner? Mm. I don't see anything. Kyoto. Well, I wasn't looking ancient enough. I guess they were less scared of the Oni by the time they got to Tokyo. Maybe. So, you know, I I wondered, like, why does this indentation help you? Why would that ward off an Oni? Apparently, the kanji used for the word corner is the same kanji used for the word horn. So having like a little notch in that corner symbolizes cutting off the Oni's horn. Okay. Fun little wordplay thing. You know how Japan <laughs> likes their wordplay. Oh, they love it. 
So if you don't have a notch in the northeast corner of your house, don't worry, there are other things you can do. For one, you want to make sure that you don't have a door or a window there. I mean, at that point, you're basically just inviting the Oni in, right? Who's got a door in the corner anyways? Well, I mean, not all houses are set up perfectly north, south, east, west. So you might have a wall on your northeast side, you know? Well, that's our mistake. All houses should be built perfectly. (laughs) Every city should be set up in a perfect grid. All houses need to have walls that are perfectly (laughs) parallel to the cardinal directions. Yep. Uh, You also want to make sure that there's no fire or water on your northeast side. Because those can excite an oni and make them more likely to attack your house. Okay. So you got to make sure you don't have a sink, a toilet, a stove. Some people even make sure that they don't have any water pipes running along the northeast side of their house. Like they'll reroute them underground just to avoid having any water in that area. That's a little extreme. You could say that. <laughs> you get, uh, that's like the boring corner of your house. It's not a lot you can put over there. Yeah, I saw one of the most common things to do with that part of the house is just put a closet there. It's oh, like okay. the, only, the only safe thing to put Let's there. Put my, put my junk in there. Yeah. Okay, that, that makes sense. Yep. So that's the demon's gate. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. There's more ways that the Japanese people protect themselves from Oni as well. So every year in February, there's the Setsubun Festival, or Setsubun Matsuri. And there's a traditional bean-throwing custom to drive Oni out and protect your house. So they take roasted soybeans and throw them out of their house, shouting, Oni wa soto! Fuku wa uchi! Meaning, Oni go out, blessings come in. And a member of the family will dress up as an Oni and they throw these beans at him. And And Oni gets all scared away. Yeah, runs outside and you saved your house. Your house is safe for another year from the Oni. Mm -hmm. That looks pretty fun. Although I, I did see some videos of like families with little kids. And the little kids are not having fun. Like, (laughs) what is this thing? Why is this big, giant, scary thing screaming at me? Crying little kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some little kids that are afraid of Santa. Sitting on Santa's lap, and they're just crying and scared. I guess whenever some stranger gets all up in your face, that that might not be that Some kids aren't into that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, Buddhist exorcisms can also work on Oni. So it is possible for a human that has turned into an Oni to be turned back into a human. Okay. Would they still be an awful human being? Probably. I don't know. Maybe they get a second chance to like try to reform. Or you just kill them right away and be like, go to hell. I don't know. <laughs> All right, Paul. I think we know a bit about Oni now. You feel comfortable with what an Oni is? Yeah. How, how to get rid of them, how to be safe. Are we ready to talk about some Oni stories? Yes, it's time. All right, how many do you have? I've just got the one. Oh. Because it was felt long enough. Oh, you have the Shuten Doji one, right? Yeah. Okay, I have one more. So I'll let you tell the Shuten Doji one, and then I'll tell mine. And so we probably have different versions of the Shuten Doji story, because I, in my research, I saw a bunch of different stuff. You know, there are shorter versions, and then really long versions that have a lot more details, so... Yeah, and all the versions are different. 
Yeah. If you read a summary of some of these stories, it's like he was from this province or this province or some other one. You know, it's like yeah. lots of different details. Yeah, that's how folklore goes. Yeah. So one of the most famous, scariest oni of all time was called Shutendoji, which translates to little drunkard. Some of these legends call him the king of oni. His mother was a human woman, and his father was a great dragon. Uh, I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, called Yamata no Orochi. Hmm. who's got his own folklore involved with him. I did not know that. The first thing I saw about him, I guess it skipped over that part and just said he was an orphan child. Okay. So when he was a young boy, he was supernaturally strong, abnormally intelligent for his age. You know, his father was a dragon, right? Everyone around him constantly called him a demon child because he was so strong and smart. I also saw he was kind of a jerk. Well, maybe this is why he was a jerk. What do you mean? He's just bigger? When, he was, when he was a little kid, everyone just like hated him because he was too good oh. at everything. Yeah. So he gradually became terribly antisocial and resentful of others. And then at age six, his own mother abandoned him and he became an orphan. So he went to become an apprentice priest at Mount Haie, I believe, in Kyoto. Uh, naturally, he was the strongest, smartest of the young acolytes, and he grew resentful of his fellow acolytes as well. He slacked off in his studies, he got into fights, he drank a lot. So he was rude and disrespectful. Just like the worst of all bad teenager things this guy was. Yeah. And it sounds like this is where he got his nickname, Shutendoji, Little Drunkard, right? Yep, yep. Because of his fondness for alcohol. Even yeah. though monks weren't supposed to drink. So that was a problem. He was not a good monk. So one night there was a festival at the temple. And Shuten Doji showed up very drunk. He put on an oni mask. And was playing pranks on his fellow priest. Jumping out of the darkness and scaring them. At the end of the night he tried to take off his mask. But he found out to his horror that he couldn't. It had fused to his face. You know, the mask movie with Jim Carrey totally ripped off this story. <laughs> so ashamed, he fled into the mountains where he would no longer have contact with other humans, whom he saw as weak and foolish and hypocrites. He lived there on the outskirts of Kyoto for many years, stealing food, alcohol, and drinking in vast quantities. His banditry attracted groups of thieves and criminals to him who stuck by him loyally and became his gang. So he's got a gang now. You could call it a gang. Yeah. I saw some people called it an army. Yeah. Well, it's probably started as a gang and became an army. Yeah. And all these other people also turned into Oni, right? Because they're all crappy people. They did. Shuten Doji grew more powerful and more knowledgeable as he got older. And more violent and wicked. Yeah. He mastered strange black magic, and he taught it all to his thugs or soldiers or whatever you want to call them. Over time, as they all turned into Oni, they started to terrorize Kyoto. 
they would get drunk and they would run into town and kidnap noble virgins, drink their blood, eat their organs raw. Yikes. You know, demon stuff. At least cook the organs. Come on. (laughs) And they had a castle, right? Yeah, he built a castle somewhere in the mountains. Mount Oe. That'll come up again. That's an interesting place. It's still very much connected to Oni. But yeah, so they had this castle. With a legend like this, I bet it does. Yeah, yeah. So they're living in this castle. He's the king of the Oni. They're on this big mountain, attacking Kyoto all the time. Bad news. Yep. But, you know, then a hero showed up. Minamoto no Yorimitsu led an assault on Shutendoji's palace. And with the help of a little bit of magic poison, he was able to attack the band while they were heavily drunk and apparently poisoned or something too. So it looks like this is there's some differences here between your version and the version I read. Okay. So I saw that Emperor Ichijo was the one that sent this warrior to kill Shutendoji. And when the soldiers all showed up, they found the Oni army drinking sake in their castle, and they poisoned the sake. That's what I saw about how, yeah. how they got poisoned. Sounds right. So yeah, once, once they're all drunk and passed out, and the poison is like keeping them knocked out, then what? Then they came in and uh, decapitated Shutendoji. After killing all the other Oni. Oh, of course. you got to kill all the Oni. Yeah. Even after being decapitated, the head continued to bite at Minamoto, trying to get him. Mm-hmm. I saw some cool paintings of that. <laughs> so the head was unholy because it belonged to an Oni. So they buried it outside the city limits on a mountain pass called Oin Osaka. Oin Osaka. You know, I saw that in some versions of the story, the head was laid to rest at Byodoin. Ah, Temple in Uji that, Paul, you and I have been to. So speaking of temples, I heard that the cup and bottle of poison that Minamoto used are said to be kept at the Narii-ji temple in Kyoto. Really? Yeah. That'd be cool to see. Yeah, I don't know. It might be one of those things where like, oh, we don't display that to the public. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But maybe they do. I don't know. Yeah. So that's it. I that's shortened it. the story a little yeah. bit because I knew this was going to be a long episode. Yeah, there are a lot of little kind of unimportant details in different versions. and I mean, those are the types of details that kind of vary a lot anyway. Yeah. Before we move on, I had one more thing that I thought was interesting about this story. I saw that some historians think that this story might have been invented by the authorities of the time to send a message to the public about how powerful they were. You know, they can be like, oh, we have these soldiers that are capable of taking down Oni, like these super scary, supernatural beings, so you can trust us, you know. We're your government, we're here to protect you. Propaganda's been around for a long time. Yeah. That makes sense. I get that. Yeah. So, yeah, it might have been just propaganda, but still Mount Oe, that mountain where you know the castle supposedly was, still has a strong connection to Oni. There's an Oni museum there that you can go to, learn all about them, and see a bunch of really cool masks and Onigawara, those, uh, the Oni roof tiles that we mentioned earlier. I saw a video. It looks like a really cool place. There are also places on that mountain where you can see Oni footprints. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> like these big holes in the ground. 
there's this giant rock that's supposed to be where those warriors rested on their way to the castle. Uh, there's even a memorial to Shutendoji that people go out and like clean every year to kind of show respect to Shutendoji, I guess. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have another story. This one is called The Red and Blue Oni. Okay. Not a single Oni that's red and blue, but two separate Onis. One is red, one is blue. Okay, okay. Good distinction there. And this story is a good example of how Oni are not always 100% evil. So there are two Oni, a blue one and a red one. And the red Oni had a taste for human friendship. Oh, I read this story. I oh. like this story. I was hoping I could surprise you with it, but... I read a lot of stories. It was just too fascinating. Yeah. I got deep. There are a lot of good ones. So this red Oni, he didn't want to eat people like a lot of Oni do. He wanted to be friends with people. So he wrote friendly messages on his house. He made sweets. He invited children to come play at his place. But of course, Oni are known for being scary and for eating people. So nobody showed up. The picture, that's just too funny. I know. Like this big monster. Was he writing on the side of his house? Children, come in. (laughs) I have sweets. No one's going near that house. I know. That's probably even worse than like, you know, an unmarked white van with free candy spray painted on the side. (laughs) Right. But I don't know. I feel bad for this guy. I imagine him like. Bending over his stove, he's pulling cookies out of the oven, wearing his big pink apron. He's like, where, where are all the kids? I need somebody to, help, to eat all these sweets that I baked. I can't wait for the kids to show up. And then he just gets more and more sad as the yeah. day goes and no one comes. Yeah, poor guy. So the red Oni went to his friend, the blue Oni, and asked for help on how to show the humans that he was friendly. You know, nobody's showing up to my place. How do I make friends with these humans? And the blue Oni had an idea. He said, okay, buddy, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to attack the human village, and then you can swoop in like a hero and chase me off, saving the humans. They'll they'll see what you did, and they'll think, oh, this, this is a good Oni. He's here to protect us. So the red Oni likes the plan. They give it a shot, and it works perfectly. Everybody is thankful to the Red Oni for saving them from the evil Blue Oni. And the Red Oni's having a great time sitting around passing sweets out to all the kids and stuff. Everything's going great, right? But soon he realized that he hadn't seen his friend the Blue Oni in a while. So he went off to look for him. He went to the Blue Oni's house, and when he got there, he found a letter from the Blue Oni saying, You know, I saw you having so much fun with the humans. I don't want to spoil that for you. Like, if the humans saw us together, they would know something was up, you know? And they wouldn't want to be your friend anymore. So, you know, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm just going to stay away. And, you know, you you can do your thing with the humans. And the Red Oni, reading this letter, wept for the loss of his dear friend. But they never saw each other again. That Blue Oni. What a guy. Yeah, that's a pretty big sacrifice to make for your friend. Yeah. Red only wanted friends, and then he realized he already had a really good friend. Yeah. It's kind of a beautiful story, kind of sad, kind of happy. Good story. A lot, of, a lot in there. Yeah, I really liked that one. A lot of emotions are touched in that story. Mm-hmm. You really feel for that Red Oni. Well, both of them, really. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. Shows that they're not just one-dimensional evil characters. They have feelings too. Yeah. That's all I have about Oni, Paul. Same. Let's talk Tengu. All right. Paul, which one do you like more? Oni folklore or Tengu folklore? Hmm. I wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> uh, Folklore-wise, I don't know. I, I like Oni more. Mm. I don't know if I like the Oni folklore better, but it's like Oni more. Okay. I like Tengu because they're like, I don't know, they strike me as more mysterious. Maybe it's just because I hadn't heard as much about them before. Yeah, I feel like I was more familiar with Oni before this episode. Yeah. Maybe because the word was easier to pick up. Like you hear someone saying Oni in a Japanese show and see it translated as demon. You can, I don't know, you just like pick that up. Yeah, I've just seen them referenced more, I feel like. But I do remember as a kid even playing video games where Tengu would pop up and I'd be like, that thing is weird. Like, what is the deal with that thing? (laughs) Clearly, it's some sort of Japanese thing, but like, it's just so weird. It's all these weird different pieces kind of stuck together. There's not like a Pokemon based on a Tengu, is there? There is. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, but it it doesn't look a ton like, you know, what you might think of as a Tengu. Loosely inspired by. Yeah. Anyway, uh, should we we start at the beginning, the origins of Tengu? Yeah. Let's go way back. Etymology. Yes. What, where does the word Tengu come from? Tengu means heavenly dog. And the name comes from a dog-like creature from China, the Tiango. But wait, wait, wait. Are Tengu bird-like, Jason? They are. Yeah, in Japan, Tengu are not dogs like the Tiango in China. They are birds. The earliest depictions of Tengu were, I mean, basically just these giant birds. And it's not super clear where, where that change happened, like how, how this became a bird-type figure in Japan. I saw that it may have come from the Garuda, a bird-like creature from Hindu and Indian Buddhism. But, you know, like I said, not, not 100% clear. Seems to be a lot of debate about where these ideas came from. I saw a lot of different theories, but nothing super concrete. Yep. Just slowly transformed over time. Mm-hmm. So the first written example of Tengu I could find in Japan was the Nihon Shoki written in 720, and it's generally believed to be the first recorded mention of Tengu in Japan. They didn't call it Tengu, though, right? Right. They were using the Chinese word Tango or Tangao. Tiango. Yeah, that Uh, might be I talked to your brother, who who knows Chinese, and I think he pronounced it Tiango. That sounds much more Chinese than what just came out of my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) So in the account from the Nihon Shoki, it described a large shooting star that appeared, and a Buddhist priest called it the heavenly dog, the Tiangao. Hmm. And the star preceded a military uprising. So that's like what it foretold, I guess. Hmm. The Chinese characters were used in the text, the ones that correspond to a Tengu in China. Mm -hmm. But in the Furigana, like, yeah, like notation. little notes to tell you how to pronounce the word. Yeah, in Japanese, it was written as Amatsu Kitsune, Heavenly Fox. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, like we said before, how it turned from a heavenly dog or heavenly fox into Birdman, it just, it just happened. <laughs> Birdman, yeah. <laughs> but much more than that. Yeah. Tengu are very 
powerful and multifaceted creatures. Yeah. So in the late Heian period, around the 12th century, a book called the Konjaku Monogatari Shu was published. This was a collection of stories that contained some of the earliest tales about Tengu, or they looked a bit closer to how they do today, the big bird creatures, or some, at least some sort of anthropomorphized bird. So these Tengu were enemies of Buddhism. I mean, they, they hated Buddhism. They, they would do anything they could to bring down Buddhism. So they would grab monks and just fly away with them and then drop them from the sky. They would <laughs> just drop them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they would possess women and use their bodies to try to seduce men. They would rob Buddhist temples. They would basically do whatever they could to try to make people stray from the path to enlightenment. And they could even disguise themselves as priests or nuns. So, you know, this being able to possess people, being able to shapeshift thing, again, abilities that a lot of yokai have. Like I said, the true form of the Tengu in these stories was that of a bird. And I thought it was interesting. I saw a lot of parallels in my research between. Tengu and Tanuki, actually, because you remember they used the concept of Tanuki to kind of criticize Buddhist priests, you know? Tanuki would like to disguise themselves as priests, that kind of thing. Seems like both of these yokai were used in stories to kind of point out the corruption and hypocrisy that people saw in Buddhist priests. Yeah, corrupt or vain priests were compared with Tengu, or there was some crossover there. Right. I saw some stories about Buddhist priests being tempted into worshiping Tengu because the Tengu would promise them power or fame. So like the priests are like, oh, I can be devout and go towards enlightenment, or I can take the easy path, get money and power and fame, and just go with the Tengu. So kind of pointing out that a lot of priests at the time maybe would take the easy way out. They weren't really super devout religious guys. They just wanted money. Yep. Yep. So there were depictions of Tengu from scrolls painted in like the 13th century, I think, 12 or 13th century. And in these older pictures, they have a lot of hawk-like features, like the big beaks, the much more bird-like characteristics. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, as they evolved, the more modern pictures have them much more human-looking. Like right. a human with like a abnormally long nose, which is supposedly harkens back to the beak. Mm-hmm. That's like the giveaway that they're a Tengu. Right. I got the impression that, so they start out as just these big birds, like 100% bird. Maybe you would see them portrayed wearing like a robe. Like, it's just a big bird wearing human clothes. Yeah. And then it seemed like over time, they got closer and closer to the human side of things. Like, eventually, they just became people with wings and beaks. And like you said, eventually, the beak turned into a big nose. Over time, the trend just went more and more towards a human, humanoid sort of anthropomorphized image. And that probably went along with the fact that as they were using them to parody real priests... They started looking more like humans, more like real priests. Yeah, that as makes the sense. stories around them changed. Yeah. So this is slightly embarrassing, but all of these sources I'm reading say they looked kite-like. Uh-huh. 
kite-like. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like picturing flat and a triangle. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah. that's a weird way to describe them. And then finally it like clicked in my head, like that can't be what they mean. Mm-hmm. That can't be what they mean. So I looked into it and kite is a bird of prey. Right. And then I was like, okay. So they just, they look like birds. Yeah. <laughs> you could have said hawk-like or falcon-like <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting thing my brain did. <laughs> yeah. I had to double check when I saw kite. I'm like, I think that's a bird kind of thing, right? And I Googled (laughs) it. Yeah. Yeah. So around the 12th, 13th century, I saw a lot of tales about Tengu causing all sorts of trouble in the world. They would abduct people, often priests, as we mentioned, but also young boys. A lot of stories about them grabbing young boys, taking them away. Yep. The boys would often be returned, but the priests would be found tied on the top of trees or other high places. Yeah, and I saw that the victims that were found or returned were almost always either at death's door or completely insane. Yeah, just psychologically broken. Mm -hmm. I heard they were often tricked into eating animal dung, which is kind of hilarious and kind of (laughs) gross. Yeah, that reminded me of the Tanuki thing too. Remember when Tanuki could like, They'd serve you food, and then while you're eating it, it turns into poop in your mouth. Yeah. What is this with Japanese folklore and poop eating? I don't know. That's, yeah. It's just the grossest thing they could think of. Something weird going on there. Yeah. Uh, so like with Oni, humans can turn into Tengu. Did you see that, Paul? Yeah, I did. They're often seen as the ghosts of angry, vain, or heretical priests, again with Throwing shade on the priests. And there's an expression for that too, right? Oh, Tengu ni naru, you mean? Yep. Becoming a Tengu? Yep. Yeah, that would refer to a conceited person. Yeah, you're too into yourself. People are, He's becoming a Tengu. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like there was a really strong association between the idea of Tengu and arrogance, vanity, and pride. Maybe this is why I like Oni more. If people like compare you to an Oni, you're like unstoppable, invincible. If they compare you to a Tengu, you're just you're just awful. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in the 14th century, there was a book called the Genpei Josuiki, which explained that there were two types of Tengu. Yep. So knowledgeable, powerful men would turn into Dai Tengu, great Tengu, but weak, ignorant ones became Ko-Tengu. And the Dai-Tengu, the great Tengu, these were the more human-like ones that we start to see later on. They're much more human-like. They got the long noses, which came from that bird beak. And this is the type of Tengu that you see most often these days. The other type of Tengu, the Ko-Tengu, the small Tengu, these seem to be the ones that are much more like the original version of Tengu. They're much more bird-like. And I saw that sometimes they're even seen as servants of the Dai Tengu. Yeah. You might be able to trick a Ko Tengu, but you wouldn't dare try it with a Dai Tengu. Yeah, those guys are scary. They're clever and powerful. They're going to mess you up. Yeah. So that's interesting. As the stories evolved over time, at some point they were just like, Oh, well, those old stories, they're talking about this type of Tengu. And then this story is talking about this other type of Tengu. Mm-hmm. They kind of wrapped it all together in a way. Yeah, it is interesting. 
So as the years went on, Tengu were often used to explain all the unsettling things that might happen in mountain forests. Tengu were known to live in the mountains, yep. generally. So mysterious sounds like the sound of a tree falling or rustling sounds despite the lack of wind. You might say, oh, that's a Tengu running through the forest. Or people might think that they hear laughter out of nowhere in the woods. That's creepy. Must be a Tengu. And if you keep moving forward, the laughing gets louder. If you try to run away, the laughing gets louder. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So you just got to stay still? I guess. I I don't know. I didn't really say what you should do. Uh, I also saw, if you hear drums, that might be Tengu, which is interesting because in our Tanuki episode, we talked about how Tanuki like to drum in the forest. Yeah. (laughs) I guess it could be either one. Yeah, some belly drumming. Yeah. I think either way, you probably don't want to go near it. So like Oni, we talked about how Oni eventually started to be seen in more of a positive light, maybe. Same thing seemed to have happened with Tengu. Even as far back as the 14th century, stories started popping up about good Tengu alongside the bad Tengu. And in the Edo period, that positive trend continued. Yeah, there are Edo period stories about... Tengu protecting monasteries or pretending to be monks and worshiping thoughtfully and trying to protect monasteries and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing with the Onis where they kind of slid into like, oh, they're not all evil or they can actually be protectors too. Yeah. Interesting how it's just a total 180. Like at first they totally hated Buddhism. They were the enemies of Buddhism. And now they're like, oh yeah, we'll help you guys out. Yeah. like Buddhism. It's at first, like, these guys are scary. And then you see enough of them, like, oh, they're kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Like, what would they do if they actually did cool stuff? Yeah, they are pretty cool. So by the end of the Edo period, I saw that Tengu started to be seen more as protective spirits of the forest. I mean, they were still dangerous. You still don't want to mess with them. But, you know, they're protectors. And some people would even see them as kami, as gods themselves. And there are apparently still people that worship Tengu today. Every time I saw something in my research mentioning people worshiping Tengu, though, it said that they were Tengu cults. Yeah, the Tengu cults. <laughs> yeah. I wonder. I mean, if you, like, heard of some people in our town that, like, worship this one demon from mythology, you would totally think, oh, okay, that's a cult. Yeah. I just, I wonder what these people's lives are like. Because when I think cult, I think like, you know, this little group of people like living secluded from the rest of society and they got Mm, all these crazy ideas. I don't know. Are they like, yeah, are they like, like that where every part of their life's controlled or do they go to their nine to five, grind out the week and then on Sunday morning they get together and like sing songs to the Tengu? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Good question. Yeah, I didn't look. I, I was like, oh, cults. I don't need to dive into that right now. I, yeah. did, I didn't really look into it. Yeah. But it's interesting to see that connection, how like some people consider Tengu as kami, because we talked in last year's yokai episode about how that line between yokai and kami can get blurry sometimes. Like a lot yeah. of yokai can be considered kami. And in some legends, the Tengu are very powerful. Mm-hmm. Like they can do almost anything, it seems. Mm-hmm. So why not call so them a god? They, yeah, they, they do things that you would like expect only a god to be able to do. Right. 
So I wanted to talk a little bit more about what these guys look like, especially these days. Like we said, the, the idea of what they looked like changed a lot over the years. But these days, if you see a Tengu depicted in modern media, you're likely to see a lot of the same types of things. The most consistent part is that they're somewhere between human and a bird. You know, these days, you're most likely to see them with that big nose instead of a beak. Their skin is usually red. And Tengu are associated with Shugendo, a religion that arose in the 7th century, which combined elements from a bunch of different religions of the time. But because of that association, these days Tengu are often seen wearing the clothes of the followers of that religion. And I heard that that association started from priests of other sects who didn't like these guys. So it was kind of like a smear campaign, like these guys are associated with Tengu. Yeah, I saw that too. They would actually like call people that they didn't like Tengu, and that <laughs> yeah. kind of got, got rolled into the mythology. <laughs> yeah. So if you see a picture of a Tengu wearing a vest with these six pom-poms, seen that, Paul? Yeah. And they got a little cap on their head too. That is the clothing of the Yamabushi the people that followed this religion, Shugendo. Pretty interesting. They often carry a staff with them in depictions because Buddhist monks do that. Mm -hmm. They sometimes have a magical feather fan. There are a lot of legends about those fans. Yeah, they're supposed to give them the power to produce powerful winds and even control the weather. Sometimes, in some tales, that fan can be used to shrink or grow a person's nose. Yeah. It's <laughs> a very Tengu-specific power. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, Tengu are often wearing tall, single-toothed geta, called Tengu geta. So these are, we talked about these in the kimono episode a little bit. They're like wooden flip-flops, sort of, but with a wooden tooth sticking out of the bottom. Normally, these days, like if you're wearing geta with a kimono, you would have two short wooden teeth, but these tengu have a, a long wooden tooth on the bottom of each geta, so they're kind of, they're almost like little stilts. Yeah, you got to balance on the one little piece of wood. Mm -hmm. And tengu have powers, of course, like other yokai. We already said they can shapeshift, they can possess people, they can fly, of course. Yeah, they There's, got the wings. They're birds, yeah. So they can fly. A lot of magical powers. Mm -hmm. Very powerful, magical beings. Yeah. And they're also known for being highly skilled in martial arts. Yes, they are. They got associated with war at some point. Yeah. There are even tales about samurai and ninjas learning their skills from Tengu. Yeah. There's a lot of stories about Tengu training humans. Yeah. And the Tengu might be doing that with good or bad intentions. I saw that some Tengu might only teach sound-hearted men who fight for a noble cause. But some Tengu might just be teaching humans because they want to encourage chaos and destruction. I saw another story about a Tengu teaching a human swordsmanship because he wanted to revive the lost art. Cool. You know, I remember one of the first places I ever saw a Tengu, I think, was as a kid in one of the Dead or Alive games. Did you ever play those? Yeah. Like a fighting game. And there was a character in there that is a Tengu, and he's awesome. And I was like, this guy is so cool. I don't know what this is, but it's awesome. Because he's amazing at martial arts. And of course, since he can fly, he's got these wings. That gives him all sorts of other advantages. 
when he's fighting. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah, so Tengu have been considered disruptive demons, harbingers of war. You said their connection with war. Bringers of destruction. But there's another thing that reminded me of Tanuki. Sometimes they're seen as gullible and easily tricked. Interesting how much overlap there is between different types of yokai sometimes, you know? Yeah, it's all kind of swirled together a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to tell some Tengu stories. Are you, Paul? Yeah. For the Tengu, my notes were already getting so long, and there's so many good stories that, like, I've got a few summaries of stories. Yeah. Mine, I don't have, like, a whole story to tell. Mine are time. pretty short, too. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll start that if you don't mind. Go for it. There's a story called The Tengu and the Woodcutter. Hmm. I just really like the ending of this story. Okay. So there's a Tengu that shows up and bothers a woodcutter. So using his supernatural abilities, the Tengu is just guessing everything that this man is thinking. You know, that'd be disconcerting if someone kept telling you all your thoughts as you had them. Uh So then the woodcutter suddenly swings his axe and a splinter of wood flies out from what he hit and hits the Tengu in the nose, of course. <laughs> the Tengu flees in terror and exclaims that humans are dangerous creatures because they can do things without thinking about them. <laughs> Never saw that axe coming, even though he was reading the guy's mind. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was just kind of a funny little bit of wisdom mixed into a fun story. It is funny. It's funny that the Tengu, like, he's got these super amazing powers. He can read people's thoughts, but he's still kind of dumb, like, to think, like, the the woodcutter wanted the splinter to hit his nose or something. This is a common theme, I think. I saw in a lot of Tengu tales that, like, Tengu are really clever, and they got all these powers and stuff, but they are completely baffled by humans. Like, they do not understand humans at all. So I interpreted the story a little bit, in my mind at least, as like the Tengu's not afraid of this one human. He could probably kill this one guy really easily if he wanted to. What scares him is that this Tengu's like so smart, he's so clever, he knows everything that's going on, but he realizes that like there's no logic to humans. Yeah, They're a wild card, they're unpredictable, and that's what bothers him and makes him want to just get away from humans. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's a fun story. What do you got? Uh, First one I got is called, there's not an easy way to translate the title into English, but it's something like, The Old Man's Lump Removed. (laughs) Did you you read this one? I, I think so. Okay. So there was this old man. He had a lump or a tumor on his face. And one day as he was walking through the mountains, he came across a group of Tengu partying. And he joined in their dancing. He's like, oh, Tengu party. Let me get in on this. Yeah. I don't know. I guess he was brave. I I don't know if I would want to join. Must have been a good party. I guess. So they actually welcomed this guy and liked him and his dancing so much that they thought, man, this guy is great. We need to get him to come back again tomorrow. (laughs) How can we do that? So they decided to take the lump from his face thinking that he would want it back and he would come back the next day be like, where's my lump? Give me my lump back. So the old man went home and he told this story to his unpleasant neighbor who also had a lump on his face. 
And the neighbor's like, oh man, I got to go, you know, get these tengu to take the lump off my face. So he goes to the mountains, he finds the tengu, and he tries to get them to remove his lump. But the tengu didn't like him as much as the other guy. I don't know if his dancing just wasn't as, as great or what, but they didn't like him. So instead of taking his lump, they gave him the lump from the other guy from the night before. So now he's got two lumps. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he goes home. Two tumors on his face instead of one. It was probably just no fun. I guess. They were all dancing and he showed up and was like, excuse me, guys, guys, I need something. Yeah. You got to dance with him for a few hours first, dude. Come on. Can't bring down the mood of the party. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah. So I've got a warrior training story. Nice. So there was a young boy who became a famous warrior. Minamoto no Yoshisune. So when Yoshitsune was a young boy, his father was assassinated by the Taira clan. Hmm. And the head of the Taira clan allowed Yoshitsune to survive, but he had to go move to the mountains and become a monk. So one day when Yoshitsune was out in the mountains, he encountered a mountain tengu called Sojobo. And Sojabo taught him the art of swordsmanship so that he might bring vengeance on the Tyra Hmm. for their crimes against him. And he did. So long story short, he grew up, became a super famous warrior, avenged his father, carried on his family. All right. All thanks to that Tengu. They don't really talk about his motives, the Tengu's motives at all. He's just... Maybe like he's just the, a fan of revenge. He's just the driving force of how this guy became who he became. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I have a fun story called The Tengu's Fan. I like this one. Yeah, this is a good one. So there was once a jerk who managed to steal a Tengu's fan as the Tengu was resting in a tree. And this jerk discovered that he could use the fan to make his nose grow long like a tengu. And then he could use it to shrink it back to normal. So he's walking through the village wondering, how can I use this power to my advantage? What can I do with this? And he comes across a beautiful maiden from a very wealthy family. Now this dude, the jerk, he's, he's just this poor nobody. You know, nobody knows who he is. He doesn't have any money. He knew he didn't have like a good chance at marriage. But he suddenly came up with a plan. He followed this beautiful maiden home, and while she slept, he used the fan to make her nose grow huge and grotesque. So when she awoke, she's freaking out, of course, looking in the mirror like, what the heck happened to my nose? And her father sees her and is like, oh crap, how am I going to marry her off now? She's hideous. (laughs) (laughs) So the next morning, the jerk with the fan, he showed up at their door and said, hey, beautiful maiden's father, I can cure your daughter. But in exchange, I would like her hand in marriage and a cut of the family fortune. And the father is like, uh, I guess, I mean, you know, can't just let her live with this huge, disgusting nose. So the jerk managed to marry this beautiful maiden. But soon after, he accidentally, he was just like dozing off and he accidentally used the fan to fan himself, causing his nose to grow So long, it burst through the roof, (laughs) which revealed his location to the Tengu that he stole the fan from. 
Uh-oh. Yeah. So, of course, the Tengu sees this. He comes back, and he's like, hey, you're the jerk that stole my fan. Give me that. And then he cursed the man to live forever, but horribly disfigured. Now, he's like, you're, that's your nose now. Live with it forever. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the wife's family learned of this guy's trickery, and they kicked him out. So now the guy is just living forever, wandering through the mountains in misery. The end. Good story. Yeah. Good story. Last one I got super short. I just thought it was interesting as it shows like the evolving culture of Japan through the years. Okay. So this is another warrior story, but it's from the 19th century. So basically a boy is carried off by a Tengu into the forest and spends three years there with him. And when he comes back, the boy's got a magic gun that never misses a shot. So it just kind of reflects the changing technology. The fact that they opened up and now we have guns. Oh, yeah. And now, you know, it's not a swordsmanship story anymore. Yeah. So I thought, oh, okay. So the Tengu gave him the gun? or Yeah, it must be. Huh. It seems like a magical gun. Okay. So instead of teaching him martial arts, which... What good is martial arts going to do you when you got 100 people shooting at you? Yeah. These gave him a magical weapon. Yeah, that's cool. Because weapons became more important than skill at that time, I guess. Yeah. Cool. Um, I have a couple more stories, but they're, they're short, I okay. promise. Okay. Um, and these kind of also show how, not how the culture evolved, but how the idea of Tengu evolved. And we talked about how later on they became known as gullible sometimes. These are stories about gullible Tengu. First one I'll tell is called The Tengu's Magic Cloak. This is a story about a boy. He's just hanging out at his house, and he's, his favorite toy is this hollow bamboo stick. And he likes to look through the stick and pretend it's a telescope. And he would pretend that he could see faraway places, or even ghosts, or yokai, or a dragon's treasure. You know, he's just pointing this thing all over like, oh, look at all these amazing things I can see. So there's a Tengu sitting in a tree nearby watching this kid play. And he becomes convinced that this piece of bamboo is magic. And of course, he wants it for himself. You know, this human kid doesn't deserve this magical item. I should have that. So the Tengu approached the boy and he told him, hey, give me that bamboo and I'll give you this magical cloak. Check this out. And it's an invisibility cloak. And the Tengu like you know, shows it off like, oh, look, you can see me. Now I put on the cloak. Now you can't see me. You totally want this, right, kid? And the kid's like, heck yeah, I do. So he hands over the bamboo. The kid takes the cloak. And the kid just, you know, runs off to cause all sorts of mischief in his village. And then Tengu is just sitting there with this useless piece of bamboo. Like, how does this thing work? (laughs) When the Tengu realized what had happened, he tried several times to find the boy to get his magic cloak back. But he never found him, of course, because the boy was invisible. Yeah, give him a visibility cloak and then try to find him. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. But in the end, the joke was on the boy because the Tengu had cursed the cloak and the boy was never able to remove it and remained invisible for the rest of his miserable life. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a sad story. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, last story. This one's super short, promise. This one's called The Tengu's Gourd. I have no idea why. I, I saw, I think, a couple places that that's the title, but there's no gourd in this story. Okay. I don't know. But this one's about a gambler who meets a Tengu. So the Tengu asks the gambler, what scares him the most? What's your biggest fear in life? 
And the gambler, you know, he's not stupid. He knows Tengu are tricky. He senses something is up. So he lies and says, I'm terrified of gold. Gold is my biggest fear. Then the gambler asks the Tengu what he is afraid of. What's your biggest fear, Tengu? And the Tengu truthfully answers that he's afraid of thorny plants. So the gambler grabs a thorny plant and teases the Tengu with it, you know, waving it in his face, scaring him. So in retaliation, the Tengu makes gold rain down on the gambler, thinking like, oh, this will teach him. I'm going to scare the crap out of this guy. Of course, he doesn't realize that the gambler actually loves gold. So another gullible Tengu. So I read that that story, after he gets the gold, he uses the plant to scare the Tengu off for good. And in his haste to leave, the Tengu leaves his magical gourd behind. Oh, that's where the gourd came from? Yeah. Even though it's not part of the story at all, it's just like the guy finds it at the end and never says what the gourd does and like story's over. Weird. Yeah. Huh. Well, yeah, this version I saw, like that was the title, but there was literally no mention of the gourd. <laughs> that's so I, weird. I don't know. Maybe whoever wrote that was just like paraphrasing some other s- They translated version. the title, but then like it wasn't the full story. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Anyway. Different versions. Yep. That's how it works. That's all my stories. Same here. All right, so lastly, let's talk about Oni and Tengu in modern Japan and how you can maybe experience some things about them. Yeah. So we already talked about Setsubun. If you happen to be there in February, maybe you can uh, enjoy some festivals. Yeah, go throw some soybeans. Yep. Go to that Oni Museum on Mount Oe in Kyoto Prefecture. You want to see where the Oni king lived? You could go find some Japanese kids and play Oni Goko with them. What is that? It's like similar to Tag, except the player who's it's an Oni. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, he's the Oni. Run away. Run away from the Oni. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You can go check out the Oni Gawara on some buildings. Mm -hmm. We've been to place that had those i feel like i've seen them i just like didn't know it was specifically oni you know they just looked like gargoyle-ish to me more faces rather than like whole bodies though right yeah it's usually just the face i think and i'm pretty sure the pagoda at kiyomizodera has those okay could be my visual memory is not good enough to like remember that yeah i don't think i was looking closely enough to notice them But there are temples and shrines all over Japan with Tengu statues and carvings, if you want to see those. There's Kurama Temple in rural Kyoto, Kasuga Taisha in Nara. I've been there, but I didn't know enough about Tengu to look for him at the time, I guess. Yeah. Hansobo Shrine in Kamakura, a lot of stuff. There are a lot of Tengu festivals, too. Yep. On October 16th, Mino Tengu Festival is held at Saikoji Temple in Osaka, on February 2nd, isn't that Setsubun, February 2nd? Um, yeah, I think so. A lot of the festivals involving Tengu and Oni are like during Setsubun, it seems. Yeah. As I got, there's one in Tokyo too that's famous. That's right during Setsubun. Hmm. February 2nd, there's a Tengu festival at Shinryuji in the Shimokitazawa area of Tokyo. Is that the one you're talking about? Shimokitazawa? Yeah. Okay. And in Otaru, near Sapporo, there's a Mount Tengu. Oh, really? A mountain named after Tengu. There's an annual Tengu festival there. 
if you go see no theater, there are Oni portrayed by actors wearing Oni masks. Mm -hmm. The masks are usually large and with red or blue faces and big horns sticking out. Oni and Tengu masks are also popular at summer festivals. Yeah, you'll see like little cheap plastic versions of those that you can buy. Yeah, the Tengu is usually rad with a big long nose on it. Yeah, I love those masks. I kind of want like a a nice Oni or Tengu mask. That would just be a fun thing to have. Yeah, I know. I want to get one too. I got to go to a Matsuri sometime. Mm -hmm. Paul, I got a fun fact for you. Okay. I've actually seen a Tengu toenail. Really? Yep. Where? Uh, on my last trip, when I was in Okinawa at the Churaumi Aquarium, they have a Tengu toenail there. At an aquarium? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Throughout history, sometimes people would find Tengu toenails in the mountains. Yeah. So they have one at the aquarium because those toenails were eventually found to be fossilized teeth of the Megalodon, the giant ancient shark. Oh. Isn't that funny? Yeah. They must have thought those Tengu were pretty big. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so other places you can see Oni and Tengu are in all sorts of Japanese media. I mean, yeah, they're all, all over, the place. over. We talked about video games already, but yeah. movies, anime, whatever. Yeah. Like I said, Pokemon has a character based on Tengu. Also, Digimon apparently also has a Tengu-like character. Okay. I didn't realize this, but there's a character in Super Mario Brothers 2 called Tweeter that's also based on a Tengu. I feel like I don't remember that. I looked it up because I played Super Mario Brothers 2 as a kid. I didn't really remember this one. It's not as like memorable as Birdo, you know? I think we had Super Mario 1 and 3. Oh. So I maybe played 2, but I don't think we ever owned it. Yeah, I feel like 2 was less popular than 1 and 3. There's a, an emoji called Japanese Goblin, but it's really a Tengu. Yeah. It just kind of looks like the Tengu mask. Yep. You might be able to find it on your phone. Yeah, it's a pretty standard one now, I think. And uh, there's Oni jeans. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a brand of denim, Oni denim. Their logo is pretty cool. It like is. Like an Oni, Oni face, scary Oni face. Yep, just like those masks. They're known for being, what is their slogan? It's like, rough as the devil, something like that, rough as Oni. They're known for making really irregular, like, textured denim. Okay. So, I don't know. I think I read that like the the founder of the company said that that was where the name came from. It's like something like that. Rough as an Oni. I That's cool. Know. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's about all I got. That's all I got too. I think this okay. episode is a little longer than usual. Yep. Hope you had fun. But it's Halloween and we love Halloween. Yeah. This is a this is a special episode, so Happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah. Hope everybody Gonna have a fun time. I hope we do. Yeah. It's gonna be weird this year. I don't know what Halloween's gonna look like. We'll find yeah. out soon. Well, maybe since everybody will be wearing masks anyway. Yeah, hey, you go trick or treat. I'm wearing a mask. Yeah. Well, uh, if you want to give us some feedback, let us know how we're doing. You can send an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. Uh, you can check out our Instagram, SJP Podcast, see some cool pictures. If you have time to give us a review and or rating on whatever podcast service you found us on, we would super appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, Paul, what are we talking about next time? 
on the next episode, we're going to be doing something a little different than what we've done before. Mm-hmm. But I think it's going to be even more interesting than I thought it would be after reading about it. <laughs> yeah. So our next episode is about the 2020 Tokyo gubernatorial election. Yeah. It already took place not long ago, but it, it was very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was a little while ago. It was July and, 5th was the election. Yeah, I mean, that's still kind of recent as far as elections go. Yeah. But yeah, it was weird. I saw it described in the media as a circus. Oh, yeah. And when I started looking into it, it's like crazier than I expected. I mean, it, it rivals the craziness of American politics lately. Yeah, there's going to be some craziness, but it's also going to, like, think, reflect a lot on Japanese culture and society, too. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it should be interesting. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>